Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. The first part of this episode in April 2021 was about the Stalinist social order itself. But the influence of Stalinism went far beyond the borders of the Stalinist societies. Starting in the 1920s, the Stalinist rulers of the USSR, and later their counterparts in other similar societies, shaped the politics of official communist parties and other left forces all over the world. There are different versions of Stalinist politics. For example, Maoism can be seen as an internal critique of Stalinism that fails to break with Stalinism itself. Stalinist politics in one form or another, which today are often described as Marxist-Leninist by their supporters, are still influential in parts of the left today. So for the second part of this episode, I'm really glad to welcome Alex de Jong to Victor's Children. Alex, would you like to just briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm an activist and a socialist from the Netherlands. I work at the International Institute for Research in Education, which, as the name indicates, is an international educational institute for socialist activists. I'm on the editorial board of the Historical Materialism Journal. And I have been active in left-wing politics here since around the turn of the century. Uh, So during the so-called ultra-globalization movement. And I guess that was also the first time that I ran into self-declared Stalinists and defenders of what we would call Stalinist politics. Um, And this is a topic that since then I have tried to study and, and to understand where the motivations for these kinds of politics come from and how they can persist on the left. Thanks. So in broad terms, just to get us started, what would you say are the most important features of Stalinist politics? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that the word Stalinism can, of course, mean different things, right? So one way of looking at it is that it's an ideology that was produced by a privileged stratum of bureaucrats in the Soviet Union. And in the previous episode, uh, Simon Pirani talked about the growth of this elite in the Soviet Union during the 20s. And it's important to keep in mind what he also said, that this was a new Phenomenon. It was something that Marxists obviously had no experience with. And it happened during a period of immense social changes in the Soviet Union. So society as a whole was in flux, while a new bureaucratized leadership was formed, a leadership that was based on the political disempowerment of 
the working class in which in whose name it claimed to be ruling. So in that sense, Stalinism is the ideology of this bureaucratic elite or privileged stratum in society. And it's both the expression of its rule and the ideology that um, justifies its rule. And of course, it is named after a specific individual, Joseph Stalin. Um, but it's much broader than the rule of this specific individual. Stalinism was a term that was sometimes used in the Soviet Union as well during Stalin's time. It was not just uh, a term invented by political opponents of Stalin. And it was also later used in the People's Republic of China during Mao's time, although it never really uh, took hold. But to talk about what's essential to this ideology, I guess one way of looking at it is um, ideologically, it's what the French Marxist philosopher Harry Lefebvre called uh, a fetishization of the state. So the state and the party or the party state plays the decisive role. And for Lefebvre, the traces of this ideology go back to the early writings of Stalin himself. For example, in 1905, Stalin wrote, Marxism is not only the theory of socialism, it is a closed world outlook, a philosophical system. And this, wo this word closed is sometimes translated as integral but in other languages it's translated as closed. So for Stalin, consciousness per definition lags behind reality because consciousness only reflects reality after the fact. This is in contradiction with Marx where knowledge and consciousness search for possible solutions to real problems. But with Stalin, consciousness per definition lags behind so in order to do politics you need to have a kind of privileged called uh, consciousness one that can see ahead and in stalinism that's the party or after taking power the party state so class struggle becomes far less privileged in a way because it's only the action those are only the actions of workers responding to reality, lagging behind reality, which they reflect in their consciousness. And you need what in Stalinism is called a general staff of the working class, the party, to actually lead the workers. So that's the role of the ideology in justifying this uh, rule of a party and a party state. And then there are two specific components that of that ideology that are important. One of them is the idea of socialism in one country. And I think Pirani also talked about this. So that goes against the idea of classical Marxism that socialism needs to be international. But under Stalin, there was also the development of the idea of an intensification of class struggle under socialism. So 
the theory was that so-called socialist elements were growing, increasing in the Soviet Union, but that this in turn provoked a kind of counterattack by the declining elements of capitalism. So instead of a withering away of the state, as predicted in classical Marxism, the state needs to become stronger and stronger to actually grow in order to defeat this counterattack. So in 1929, Stalin, in a discussion with Bukharin, says, disagreements in our party have their roots in class changes, in the intensification of the class struggle, which has been taking place and which marks a turning point in development. So this means that disagreements are class struggle, even disagreements in the party are class struggle, and they are class struggle between the working class and the declining elements of the capitalist class. So this justifies the most uncompromising repression of any kind of internal disagreement. Um, and what happens is a growth of the bureaucracy and the repressive apparatus and in the late 1930s, there is a, a break when this repression turns against the Communist Party itself and the generation that had made the 1917 revolution is wiped out with the justification of this idea that any disagreement is a sign of uh, alien class influence but also because the claim of Stalin was that socialism had been established, any kind of misfortune, any kind of accident had to be blamed on outside saboteurs and so-called wreckers. And this is one of the new elements that takes place in the, in the late 1930s, that the repression is turned against members of the Communist Party themselves, and that a whole generation is destroyed. There's a joke from that time that late at night, when the secret police would knock at doors in apartment buildings to arrest people, to execute them, they knock at somebody's door and the door is opened and he sees there's the political police standing outside and he says, oh, you're in the wrong place. We are not party members. The, co the communists live upstairs. You have to go there. So Stalinism as a rule, as a way of ruling is also the destruction of the communist party in the form that had made the revolution. And instead, uh, there's the formation of a supposedly monolithic party a party as the general staff of the working class. And what's central about this is that this party, this general staff, then becomes to stand in for the self-activity of the working class. Because the, idea, the ideology claims that working class consciousness is per definition lagging behind. It needs a general staff to lead it. And the party comes in 
to stand in for the class. And then after taking power, of course, the party state becomes the vanguard of the revolution. And from that, you have other claims. So if the party state is the privileged consciousness, social movements, for example, or any kind of class struggle, become subordinated to it. Um, and they have to function as what is called transmission belts of the party. And the leader of the party then becomes yeah, the, the carrier of the world spirit almost. So you have this cult of the great leader, of the supposedly infallible leader who represents this uh, privileged consciousness. Uh, and Gerhard Harms, a Dutch Marxist who had been an enthusiastic Stalinist in the 50s, after he broke with Stalinism, he claimed that for him, one of the characteristics of Stalinism was also the opportunistic use of ideological claims in order to justify the rule of this party state. So that's, I think, also why you can have these very sudden shifts made by Stalinist parties or, or groups or this very kind of opportunistic uh, maneuvering as long as it's in the interest of the party or the party state. I think that's very helpful for understanding uh, the kind of politics that were diffused internationally, literally to millions of people. Right? Um, and I think it may not be easy for many people today listening to this to understand just how widespread this was. Um, you know, because of the, the actual material resources and the great prestige of the USSR and you know the similar states uh, that they, they exercised that influence far beyond their own borders. Uh, so maybe we could talk about Maoism um, for a minute, since I, I mentioned earlier that it can be seen as an internal critique of Stalinism that fails to break with Stalinism, and that's a formulation I take from the U.S. writer and activist Elliot Liu uh, in his book Maoism and the Chinese Revolution: A Critical Introduction. So, Alex, could you talk about how Maoism criticizes what we could call mainstream Stalinism, that is, the, the version associated with the parties that were formerly aligned with the USSR, um, and then in what ways Maoism still remains Stalinism? So the first thing to keep in mind that, especially in the beginning, Maoism was not a term used by people to refer to themselves. It was a label given to them. Um, and so there are different things are called Maoist. So the first uses of that term start popping up, I guess, in the late 50s and early 60s, when after uh, the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, makes a partial criticism of the repression under Stalin. And also the Soviet party starts moving towards a theory of what they call the peaceful coexistence and peaceful competition between the so-called socialist bloc led by the Soviet Union and the imperialist or capitalist bloc. 
So Maoism first takes shape as a rejection uh, of these ideas. And you have the first groups being formed that are called Maoists by others as groups that are in opposition to these uh, changes. In 1963, the Chinese Communist Party publishes a document called On the Question of Stalin, in which they write, Stalin's life was that of a great Marxist-Leninist, a great proletarian revolutionary. It is true that while he performed many great deeds for the Soviet people and the international communist movement, Stalin also made certain mistakes. So there is a recognition that some things went wrong, um, but the specific criticisms that were being made by Khrushchev, for example, are just flat out rejected. Like there's no arguments here. It's just an assertion that uh, Stalin did not do these things. Then, because they do make this point that some uh, policies on the Stalin were wrong or mistaken, there are two specific examples in which Maoism, as it takes shape around that time, is different, I guess, from mainstream Stalinism. So first of all is the idea that Stalin confused so-called non-antagonistic contradictions between the people for antagonistic contradictions. So as I said, uh, under Stalin, there's this claim that the class struggle intensifies under socialism. And when you have already declared that the capitalist class has been defeated, any disagreement, any ideological struggle is the work of saboteurs that need to be ruthlessly crushed. So there's an implicit often recognition by Maoists that this led to the persecution of innocent people. Um, and this is implicit because they use this kind of euphemistic language that Stalin mistakenly saw contradictions among the people as contradictions between the enemy and the people. The second point of criticism that's developed in Maoist circles of Stalin is that for Stalin, building socialism basically meant increasing the forces of production under the leadership of the party and its cadres. So the more iron is produced, the closer we get to socialism as long as we live in a one-party state. In Maoist writings, there's a recognition of both the danger of bureaucracy and the need to change the relationships of production as well, and not just build the forces of production. So in Maoism, you have more emphasis on the idea of spontaneous uprisings and struggle. For example, this famous slogan, it is right to rebel. And the solution to the danger of bureaucracy then are so-called mass campaigns to criticize the party. So that's how the Cultural Revolution, for example, started in the eyes of Maoists as a mass campaign of criticism of the party from below. The problem, of course, is that 
at the end of the day, it's the party that decides which contradictions are antagonistic and which not. And also, it's the party that decides to launch these mass campaigns of criticism or not. And then also it's the party that decides what to do with this criticism or not. And there are historical examples of the party, for example, launching such mass campaigns in China during the 100 Flowers campaign, and then deciding that what were previously non-antagonistic contradictions have become antagonistic contradictions and that need to be repressed. So the essential element in which Maoism does not break with Stalinism is that just like mainstream Stalinism, it sees the party, not working class self-activity, as the driving force towards socialism. So it's still the party that has the privilege of deciding which contradictions are antagonistic or not, which criticism is allowed or not, which mass campaigns can be allowed or not. And then the slogan, it is right to rebel against reactionaries, becomes the, the new version of the slogan, it is right to rebel. And it's the party at the end of the day that decides who is the reactionaries and who not. And I think we probably could also add that uh, when we're talking about the party, we're really talking about the party leadership uh, of a party which does not allow members to freely organize, you know, to put forward different viewpoints and, uh, you know, or form tendencies and platforms and factions and that kind of thing. Yeah, the idea of a monolithic party is still upheld. In, for example, the early 1980s, the Revolutionary Communist Party in, in the USA, at the time one of the more significant Maoist groups there, they published a kind of manual for Maoist ideology called the Signs of Revolution, in which there's a chapter dedicated to democracy in the party. And there's something written there like, there should be the widest possible debate inside the party. But also there should be central leadership to decide which questions can be debated in the first time. So again, like you say, it's the party that decides what can be talked about, or the party leadership better, that decides what can be talked about, what can be disagreed with, um, and what's even up for debate. But I think it's also important to recognize that with this element of at least rhetorical uh, support for disagreement and mass uh, activity and spontaneous uprisings, there's also a kind of Maoism that takes place somewhat later in the 60s that puts more and more st uh, stress on this element of spontaneous uh, self-organizing almost. So you have a kind of creative misunderstanding of what's actually happening in, for example, the Cultural Revolution that leads to the formation of political groups outside of China that consider themselves Maoist and sometimes even start using that term to refer to themselves, but that in practice break 
with a lot of these ideas. So, for example, in France, you have a group called Vive la Révolution, which was a kind of Maoist, spontaneous group that organized people who would also be pioneers in gay liberation or the women's liberation movement. And I think mainstream Stalinism did not even let, uh, did not even allow for the space of this kind of creative misunderstanding. So if we think about the way that many dedicated socialists have been members of Stalinist organizations in different parts of the world, and some of them have played positive roles in advancing important struggles, certainly we can look at the history of, of Canada and look at the way that the Communist Party of Canada, uh, which was the subject of an earlier episode of this podcast, um, you know, some of its members did certainly play important roles, uh, positive roles in, in social struggles. But Stalinist politics have also had an enormously negative influence in history. So to start, can you talk about this in some general terms? Well, for, first of all, we should distinguish between, on the one hand, Stalinism in power, when we're talking about these party states, and Stalinism in opposition, when you're talking about working class uh, groups, movements, and parties in, in opposition. And of, of course, these are subject to very different um, processes, very different demands. But in general, because Stalinism identifies historical pros progress with the party and then with the party state and then the stress for the ideological unity and the monolithic par character of this party, it starts to look at states, not classes, as the forces for emancipation. So whatever it's in the interest of a specific state overrules uh, concrete working class struggle. Uh, so we have a kind of reason of state that replaces as self-emancipation from below. That's one thing. Another thing is that this cult of leadership around supposedly a perfect leader figure, the infallible leader, leads to intense disappointment whenever there's the inevitable uh, failures committed by these great leaders. So, for example, when Khrushchev reveals some of the crimes committed by Stalin and during, under Stalin's regime in the Soviet Union, some parts of the international communist movement simply refuse to believe that this has happened. Um, and others become totally disillusioned and withdraw completely from politics. Third thing is, of course, that Stalinism, because of all the crimes committed in its name, has incredibly... Uh, Stalinism has inflicted a lot of damage on the credibility of the entire project of socialism, right? If socialism if socialism means human liberation, um, then Stalinism, which meant large-scale torture, large-scale executions, labor camps, forced labor, etc., 
discredited this whole project of human liberation in the eyes of many people across the world. So one of the most severe consequences of Stalinism has been this alienating uh, of people, of workers, from the very idea of socialism. And you can see that still today, for example, Eastern Europe, in countries that were supposedly socialist a few decades ago, where the entire notion of socialism has disappeared and the political climate is in countries like Hungary or, Pol or Poland, even more right-wing than it is in many Western European countries. Yeah, that's very helpful. Maybe we could then uh, talk about some specific situations uh, in history and where we've seen Stalinist politics having a really negative influence. Well, I think Simon Birani already gave a lot of examples of that in the previous episode. What you see in a lot of cases is that because socialism has become identified with certain states and with a certain state apparatus, all kinds of crimes are then committed by the state in the name of socialism. So to give one example, and you can give many, many <laughs> examples of where this kind of nationalist state logic can lead to. In the early 1930s, the Western borderlands of the Soviet Union were cleansed, that's the word used by Soviet authorities, of German and Polish families. So these groups were, as groups, because of their ethnic background, seen to be suspicious. Uh, almost half a million people were arrested and deported. In the words of one Soviet official, the Poles were to be completely destroyed. And Stalin himself, when he received a report on this whole process, he wrote on it, very good, dry up and purge this Polish espionage mud. And over 100,000 Polish people were shot in this operation. And in 1938, Stalin disbanded the Polish Communist Party, exiling or executing its leadership, uh, accusing them of being agents of simultaneously the Polish government and of Trotsky. Um, so if today people in Poland are completely alienated from um, any idea of communism, this kind of history, of course, plays a role in that. In 1940 to 1941, thousands more Poles were deported from the occupied part of Poland. So after the occupation of Poland was part of the Stalin-Hitler agreement and the non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union divided up Poland into zones that were to be occupied by the armies of the two different states. And around that time, in order to prevent the formation of any kind of national resistance by the Poles against the Soviet Union, as Soviet forces murdered some 20,000 Polish soldiers in June 1914, 1940, the so-called Katyn mass murder. You can give many more uh, 
examples of crimes committed in the name of Stalinism because of this logic in which whatever the Stalinist party state does stands in for the struggle for socialism. So 250 240,000 people were executed in so-called national operations that targeted so suspected nationalities like the Germans, Poles, but also Koreans. Um, some 110,000 Baltic peoples were deported to Siberia, the far north and central Asia. And then during the war, the Muslim peoples of the northern Caucasus were prosecuted. So, for example, Chechen and Ingus people, about half a million, were deported. And of course, for such a huge operation, you need centralized state coordination. Tens of thousands of these people, they died en route. When they arrived at uh, their destination, there were no supplies, no shelters, nothing for them. And according to figures of the Soviet intelligence themselves, around a quarter of the people died during the first four years of their exiles. Um, another example that is quite striking is that the German historian Hermann Weber, who did research on the history of the German Communist Party, the KPD, he found that more members of the Central Committee of the German Communist Party were killed under Stalin then were killed under Hitler. And many German communists, they were actually killed under Hitler after they were handed over by the Stalinist uh, Soviet Union to uh, Nazi Germany. So in February 1940, for example, some 570 German communists were handed over to the Nazis by the Soviet Union. So all of this, of course, are crimes in themselves, but this also did huge damage to the credibility of the communist movement as a force that claimed to be representing human emancipation. I think those are important and today not well enough known. And we could also talk about um, situations in which communist parties you know, far from the Soviet Union, which played important roles in, in social struggles, really became barriers to advancing those struggles. So, for example, in, in France in the late 1960s, um, or in Italy, again, at the same, the same period where you had enormous upsurges of working class struggle and other groups in society uh, beginning to organize themselves and the communist parties really playing a, a role of being a break on that self-activity. Yeah, you can especially see this with, for example, the French Communist Party. So this is a party that in 1945 entered into the French government and acting in solidarity with the government, as they put it, they actually voted for the credits needed to send French colonial troops to Vietnam. Um, because in agreements with the Western allies, the Soviet Union had agreed that what was then Indochina 
should belong to the Western sphere of influence. So in 1945, the Vietnamese already proclaimed the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, but the Soviet Union doesn't recognize this republic until years later, until after the, the Chinese uh, Revolution. And then later, it's the Soviets and the Chinese together that pressure the Vietnamese into accepting a compromise that made a new war, a new war inevitable, um, and a compromise that was probably far less than was possible considering the balance of forces after the defeat of the French colonial troops. But you also see, I think here, this contradictory character of Stalinism, because, and for example, occupied Europe, many people had joined Stalinist parties because of their resistance against the Nazis. And they had done so in the hope and the expectation that after the war and after the defeat of the Nazis, there would not just be a simple return to things as they were. Um, so in some countries, you would have movements that on the one hand, were rhetorically ultra-Stalinist in their praise for Stalin, the great leader, but who were also quite radical and at first were unwilling to accept, for example, the compromises forced on them by these agreements between the Western allies and the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And this brings us to perhaps the most important question, in a sense, which is the question that today some people may, having listened to this, say, really, well, does this matter in, in 2021? Is this not just something from the past that's not relevant to, to the left today? What would you say in response to that kind of challenge? Well, first of all, this kind of history does not just go away, right? Um, and anybody who today consider themselves communist or a socialist or a Marxist or whatever, when you try to put across these ideas, you will be confronted by people who refer to the crimes committed under Stalin and to the crimes of Stalinism. And it's not very convincing to respond to that by saying, oh, well, that's all in the past, let's not talk about it, or to wave away genocide, ethnic cleansing, mass murder as details in history that we don't need to talk about. Even if a lot of the times this referring to this history is opportunistic by, for example, right-wingers who want to discredit any kind of left-wing politics, I think the left needs to have a convincing answer to it. It can't just run away from the question because a lot of people don't think that mass murder is a good idea. And you need to be able to explain why these crimes were actually in contradiction with the goals of socialism and with the ideas of Marxism. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that in different parts of the world, there are still 
significant self-declared Stalinist forces who still uphold this worldview and this kind of politics. So one example would be the Communist Party of the Philippines, which in the 90s adopted a document called Stand for Socialism Against Modern Revisionism, in which they declared Stalin's merits within his own period of leadership are principal and his demerits are secondary. He stood on the correct side and won all the great struggles to defend socialism. Stalin was able to unite, consolidate, and develop the Soviet state. Stalin was able to hold his ground against the threat of U.S. imperialism. As a leader, he represented and guided the Soviet proletariat and people from one victory to another. So first of all, this is, of course, clearly contradictory to Marxism. This is a true great man view of history in which Stalin himself as an individual did all these marvelous things. But politically, this leads the Communist Party of the Philippines to uphold this theory of the party as the general staff of the proletariat and substituting working class self-emancipation with the role of the party itself. So Stalinist ideas as the instrumentalization of social movements into transmission belts for the party still persist. And you have current day writers, like for example, uh, Jean Mouffarat Paul, who explicitly argue in favor of what they call a kind of socialism that's partly from below, but also crucially from above, meaning by the party states. In this argument, self-emancipation is only a minor part of Marxism. So this is a kind of explicit defense and attempt to again implement the same kind of top-down party state politics as a form of socialism. And finally, what you can see today is a kind of Stalinism without Stalinism, where certain reflexes, even when there are maybe no self-identified Stalinist forces, the kind of ideology and the kind of political operate, uh, political maneuvering is still in place. So in Stalinism, the struggle between states replaced that between classes. Today, there are not many Stalinist states anymore, but there are still some groups, people on the left, who think it's the job of leftists to support one state against another state and to basically support whatever state that is at least rhetorically opposed to, for example, U.S. imperialism, without making any kind of class analysis of that state and of working class struggles in that state. So in, in all those forms, Stalinist politics are still alive on the left. So it's, it's not only a historical question, it's still a current question.
I think those are great examples. Um, and for our listeners here, I should just mention that, of course, since there's a very large uh, Filipino community in Canada, um, the in- influence of, of the politics of the Communist Party of the Philippines is not uh, absent within the, the community here, uh, because, of course, the Communist Party of the Philippines remains the, the largest radical left force in the Philippines. Uh, and through its various front organizations, has a, a presence internationally. Um, and so some people you know, listening to this may in fact have had the experience of working in migrant justice or other kinds of campaigns um, with Filipino Canadians who are in some way affiliated to one of those organizations. And I suspect that may be true for people listening elsewhere too. And certainly the kind of politics that you just talked about in terms of uh, supporting one state uh, against another so-called campused politics is something which has really grown, I think, in uh, in recent years, unfortunately. You asked before about um, international examples of uh, Stalinist logic and Stalinist politics. Um, one example that I also could give was something that's not related to Stalin's Soviet Union, but where you can see this kind of politics play out in a different context. Is, um, when in 1971, what was then East Pakistan declared itself independent and formed what is now Bangladesh, Pakistan was allied to the People's Republic of China. So because states are have, are standing in for classes, so to say, and because the general staff of the proletariat is supposedly unable to m- make mistakes and even less to commit crimes, the Maoist movement around the world saw itself obliged to support Pakistan in its uh, attempt at repressing the Bangladeshi liberation movement. and. The Pakistani army uh, committed a genocide in Bangladesh. But all across the world, you had Maoists denouncing the Bangladesh struggle as a CIA operation. Even here in Amsterdam, solidarity meetings with Bangladesh were disturbed by Maoists with the slogan, uh, Bangladesh is CIA. And that just reminds me so strongly of what we've been seeing in more recent years. For example, the uprising in Syria, where an entire revolution, entire mass uprising is labeled to be nothing more than a CIA operation because supposedly Syria is an anti-imperialist state. Again, I think that's a really helpful historical example because people who um, may be pretty familiar with the politics around uh, the struggle in Syria and campism and so on may not realize that there is a historical uh, pattern here, even if some of the political specifics are different. So I think that's helpful in terms of uh, understanding some of the underlying politics that lead people to take these reactionary positions. There are two ideas we often find in Stalinist politics, although not in every form of Stalinist politics, and, and we also often find them in other kinds of left politics too. And the first of these is uh, the idea that the struggle for socialism has 
strictly demarcated stages. That is a, a first stage in which communists seek to participate in coalition governments, uh, administering capital estates uh, in the name of making democratic change. And then at some future point, at some future stage, there can be struggle against capitalism. Uh, and then the second idea is the, the goal of forming popular fronts. So broad alliances which unite everybody from the radical left through social democrats, liberals, and the so-called progressive element of the capitalist class, altogether against fascism or some other right-wing threat. So can you say something about what's wrong with these political ideas in particular? Well, what's I think at the core of both of them is the issue of alliances and what kind of alliances are formed. Obviously, no one would deny that alliances are necessary, but the question is alliances of whom and on the basis of what and to which ends. And I think it's crucial what you mentioned, this element of popular fronts, of an alliance of, on the one hand, working class forces with so-called progressive elements of the capitalist class. In itself, that's not a new idea. The idea of the working class allying with parts of the bourgeoisie that dates already from the early 20th century, when some of the more right-wing or centrist parts of social democracy in Europe were in favor of allying with so-called progressive bourgeois forces in order to gain, for example, the right to vote. But of course, such alliances, they always come with a, with a price. Uh, in this case, for example, uh, it meant toning down class demands or switching to other forms of political action and increasing relying on bourgeois representatives rather than on mobilizing in the streets, for example, if that was thought to be too confrontational. And already some of the debates in the early 20th century between, on the one hand, Karol Kautsky and on the other hand, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, who criticized this approach, were exactly around this issue. So it's, it's not a new question in a way. It's a structural challenge. I think that's important to keep in mind. And then the popular front, as it was formulated by the Communist International in 1935 was a kind of revival of this older social democratic approach of allying with the progressive bourgeoisie. And I think it's useful to put that in its historical context. So in 1933, power was transferred to Hitler in Germany. In the period before that, during the so-called third period after 1928 until more or less 1935, the Communist International had actually taken an extremely sectarian course, almost the exact opposite of a popular front approach. So during the so-called third period, they went as far as labeling social democracy as objectively fascist or as social fascism. So already in 1924, when Mussolini was already in power in Italy, Stalin quite famously declared that social democracy 
is objectively the moderate wing of fascism. Fascism and social democracy do not negate, but supplement each other. They are not antipodes, they are twins. So the approach in this period was that social democracy was actually the main enemy that had to be crushed. And only after that would come the struggle against fascism. In addition, the communist international around that time was arguing that whether or not Hitler coming to power was not really that big of a difference for German politics. They claimed that Germany was already fascist since 1930 anyway. Um, so this was an extremely sectarian approach that, of course, in some ways uh, was pushed back against by rank and file uh, communists. It was also a kind of sectarianism that in some way was mirrored by social democracy. The Social Democratic Party in Germany at the time, they would also denounce uh, the communists and the Nazis as equally bad as totalitarian uh, parties. Um, so, of course, this was a completely disastrous uh, approach. And it's only after Hitler came to power that, on one hand, parts of social democracy actually took a hard left turn and started calling for revolutionary working class resistance against fascism. While, on the other hand, the Communist International takes a turn to the right, uh, as it were. Because what they decide on in the seventh Congress of the Common Turn in 1935 is this approach towards a popular front. And this means an alliance of the Communist Party, but also other left-wing parties with indeed parts of the bourgeoisie. Like, for example, in France, the so-called Radical Party, which despite its name was not a <laughs> radical party, but it's a party that indeed would be considered liberal in the modern sense uh, of the word, an explicitly pro-capitalist bourgeois party, but in favor of, so, of, let's say, democratic freedoms and reforms. So the approach of a popular front was to include such bourgeois forces into an alliance with more left-wing forces. And that makes it different from an other older strategy of the communist international, which is that of the United Front. So this was an approach that had been defended by the communist international in the early 20s. And a United Front was thought to be necessary in the struggle against fascism, but also in, in broader, in the process of mobilizing the working class against capitalism on a class basis so united front would be an alliance of, would be an alliance of working class organizations and forces on an independent basis and the, the popular front uh, is something very different and this kind of interclass alliance this popular front probably reached its peak during the war during the second world war uh, until around 1947, when the Cold War starts. So in this period from 19, 
in the 1940s until 1947, you see that communist parties abandon any short or even medium-term goals of overthrowing capitalism or the bourgeois state, which makes sense because it's, you cannot ally with somebody that you're actively trying to overthrow. And it also becomes difficult to ally with somebody you consistently fight. So you get this dynamic in which communist parties limit their demands and actions in order not to offend their bourgeois allies and in return gain positions in the bourgeois state or hope to gain such positions in the state as rewards in the future, which in, means that these communist parties actually become more and more dependent on such alliances with bourgeois forces and such positions in the bourgeois states because movements from below are being discouraged and the political differences with bourgeois forces are less and less clear. And you clearly see the result of such an approach on, for example, the issue of colonialism in European countries. Exactly because colonialism was one of the non-negotiable <laughs> demands, so to say, of the bourgeois forces, uh, communist parties in different countries, they toned down or even completely abandoned their opposition to colonialism. And that led to incredibly bad political uh, positions being taken. So, for example, uh, in 1945, on May 8, there was the so-called Setif massacre in Algeria, in which French police fired on demonstrators. And this was followed by more attacks by French settlers and French police on local people, um, which led to the deaths of thousands of Algerians. The low estimations is 6,000. Some estimations are that French forces and French settlers killed 30,000 people in the period after that. At the time of these events, the Communist Party of France stated that the perpetrators of the disturbances were of Hitler's inspiration and method. The Communist Party suggested that it was a provocation fomented by the big trusts and Vichy officials. And the political bureau issued a statement, we must immediately and mercilessly, mercilessly punish the organizers of the revolt. And this had to be done in name of the defense of the French Republic, one and indivisible. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the French Communist Party was not unique in this, even though they probably went farther than many other communist parties. So in the USA, the Communist Party supported the repression of labor strikes and the imprisonment of leftists and labor activists who did support strikes. This was part of the alliance with the bourgeoisie. It even went so far that when the Roosevelt administration interned Japanese Americans, 
This was not opposed by the Communist Party. And the Communist Party even expelled their own Japanese-American communists. And I think if you had told American communists in 1935 that they were choosing an approach that would lead them 10 years later to also cheer on the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the approach that would lead them to expel their own comrades from the party, they would have been quite sincerely offended, I think. This is not a matter of individuals selling out or of being uh, bad people. There's an objective dynamic, objective pressures that these parties were vulnerable to because they allied with parts of the bourgeoisie. You, you see a general pattern of class collaboration and the limiting of so-called offensive goals or offensive struggles of the labor movement in order to maintain these alliances. So, for example, on a smaller scale in the Netherlands, even the Communist Party, which before the war had been a strong supporter of Indonesian independence, Indonesia was a colony of the Netherlands at the time, when the Indonesian leader Sukarno and Hatta declare Indonesian independence in 1945, August 1945. The Dutch Communist Party initially starts by warning against the negative impact the so-called loss of Indonesia would have on Dutch workers. So the first instinct is not to rally behind the call for independence, but instead to call for a reformed way in which the Netherlands and Indonesia would remain part of one state. And the reasoning behind this is completely guided by national criteria. So the language is always about what is good for the Dutch people as a whole. So, of course, this means that in this case, the Indonesian people more or less become in invisible but also the class contradictions within Dutch society uh, were not taken into account. That's another result of this approach towards an inter-class alliance. And I want to emphasize it's not a matter of individual choices that are being made, and you can see, clearly see it when you see how this dynamic takes place again and again. So. A similar line of a inter-class alliance is adopted by, for example, the Japanese Communist Party in the 1960s. So in the late 1960s, there's a very large radical student movement in Japan. And during this period, again, in order to maintain an alliance with the so-called progressive bourgeoisie, or to at least keep open the possibility of such a future alliance, you see that the Japanese communists are actually voting for repressive laws and that in several instances, the youth organization of the Japanese Communist Party even collaborates with the police in repressing radical uh, protests of the Sengakur and the, the radical leftist student movement. 
two particularly dramatic examples of how, why this is also a very dangerous approach to take uh, are the Indonesian Communist Party and Chile's government under President Allende in 1973. In both cases, socialists, communists adapted this popular front strategy, even if they maybe not always use that term. The approach was indeed that of an attempt to ally with so-called progressive forces and then together with these progressive bourgeois forces institutionalize democratic reforms and then in a later stage move forward, it was hoped towards socialism. In both cases, this meant that leftists were creating and spreading illusions in exactly the same bourgeois state apparatus that they were trying to influence and to become parts of. So especially you see this with, for example, the Indonesian Communist Party emphasizing that the Indonesian army was an anti-imperialist army and a nationalist army and not an enemy of the communist movement. And in the case of Chile, the Allende government also used rhetoric about the democratic character of the army and refused to arm, for example, radical leftist workers who were demanding arms that they would need to defend themselves against the counter-revolution, exactly because they didn't want to alienate bourgeois forces. And in both cases, uh, you see that the movement is then crushed by the supposedly democratic army. So by parts of the bourgeois state apparatus. So you see this pattern again and again, um, even as recently as when in 2012, the police in South Africa opened fire on a wildcat of miners, on striking miners and killing 34 miners. The Communist Party of South Africa denounced these workers as criminals because these workers were supposedly guilty of trying to sabotage the alliance between the Communist Party and the progressive bourgeoisie. So you see the striking resemblance, whether it's in 2012 with striking miners or 1945 with Algerian nationalists, because these Communist parties have become so much part of the bourgeois state, they also refer to this rhetoric of agents, uh, provocateurs, uh, saboteurs, etc., in order to explain protest against these supposedly progressive governments that they are supporting. So it's a process of party leaders and party activists becoming integrated in bureaucratic structures and slowly they start worrying more about outward signs of supposed strength, strength, such as number of votes, seats in parliaments and membership, and less and less about what such numbers are actually for. Positions in the state apparatus are becoming seen as ends in, as in themselves, without taking into account that 
the bourgeois state is not some kind of static thing that you can take over piece by piece. So instead it's something that's in movement. The bourgeoisie will also use its own influence in state apparatus. And the state apparatus of a bourgeois state is, of course, structurally built to the advantage of capitalist forces and in order to protect private property and to limit the influence of the workers' movement. So it's a kind of trap for communist parties, for socialist forces, because the strength of working class political forces is a mobilized and conscious working class fighting for its own interests. But by allying themselves with parts of the in such a popular front, the dynamic is actually of, on the one hand, alienating parts of its own strength by uh, toning down struggles from below, but also even opposing, outright opposing such struggles, and then becoming more and more reliant on positions in the state apparatus. Um, and you see this happening and again and again, and whether it's Rosa Luxemburg arguing this against the dynamic in German social dem democracy or much more recent cases, the, the structure of it is similar. So it's not a matter of opposing alliances in itself or a kind of moralistic argument about trying to keep clean hands, as it were. The question is, where do socialists and communists base their political power on? And can they base it on the bourgeois state? Or does it come on the contrary from a mobilized and conscious working class movement? I really want to thank you for your time and uh, the you know very clear way that you've addressed some of these questions that are pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people on the left today. So thanks so much. Thank you, David. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>